Yeah, a bit of a heads up, I will uh, be traveling these next couple of days, going to Birmingham, and um, I'm actually going with uh, a few pastor friends. We're going to play golf. Should be real, uh, real honest with you about that, okay? And y'all know how I hate stereotypes. I don't like it when people think I'm a stereotypical pastor, but what is more stereotypical than preaching on sexual immorality and then going golfing for a Baptist preacher, right? Well, that's me this week. We get to approach the topic of sexual immorality from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Really, the main goal of this passage is holiness. Is holiness. And we're, we're okay with holiness, right? And we like holiness as a general idea, and we prefer to hear and think about holiness in those general terms, like the holiness of the Trinity, the thrice holy God, holy, holy, holy. That's what we sing, right? We love to think about the holiness that is given, credited to God's people. And we can get along with these general statements of holiness, but when it comes to the specifics of holiness, we don't get so comfortable, do we? The specifics, we, we draw back. Oh, holiness means this for my life. I don't know. Let, let me pull back from this holiness a little bit. Let me pull back from conversations, meaningful conversations with brothers and sisters. Let me pull back because I don't want to talk about how holiness ought to look in my life. I want you to hear what Paul says. We'll begin to... Unpack it together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God, your sanctification, holy. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Pray with me. Father, we once again ask your help. Help my words today. Help your word to meet us right where we are, to provide balm to the one who is broken, to cut down the one that is proud, 
then in all ways we would be pointed to Jesus, who is our greatest need. We thank you for what he has done on the cross. For his shed blood, his resurrection, we find our hope in this today as we are all fallen sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message today is Holiness Homed In. Holiness Homed In. So we've been walking through 1 Thessalonians and we have dealt with this introductory matter of Paul and his relationship to the saints at Thessalonica. And he hasn't given any specific instructions. Three chapters of just, it's like oozing with their love for one another and their desire to be together. And then we get to this chapter and he begins to unfold some instructions. He begins to give them the necessary things that, that apparently according to the Spirit that they needed to hear at this time. And I would tell you that we need to hear at this time, this morning. Our theme today, the call to holy living, needs specific attention because it has tremendous implications. The call to holy living needs specific attention because it has tremendous implications. Implications, And I hope you'll see that as we unpack this text. And from the text, I want to give you three words of counsel. I want to give you three words of counsel this morning. First off, from verses 1 and 2, hear the exhortations to greater holiness. Hear the exhortations to greater holiness. Right there at the beginning, Paul says, finally, That usually means he's about to get to some nitty-gritty in his letters. And Paul says right here in these verses, I've exhorted you in this, and you've heard my teaching enough to know these things already, but I want you to see this area develop more and more. I think there are three um, basics that were part of this exhortation or these, these exhortations. First off, it's a gospel urging. He says right here, He says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. It's a gospel urging. I've been reading recently on a a movement of sorts that is, it really goes back several decades, but it's actually called obedience-based discipleship. And that sounds real nice on the surface. Uh, Honestly, I don't know what other kind of discipleship there would be. Discipleship sort of, for me, just assumes that you're going to be obedient to the Word of God. But I've been reading about this, and this movement subtly undermines Scripture. And it basically makes the words of Jesus, specifically the commands of Jesus, superior to all other words in the Bible. Furthermore, it is specifically contrary to the gospel of grace. Obedience-based discipleship teaches people that in order to be pleasing to God, you have to succeed in this command, this command, this command, this command. And once you do that, you are good to go. You can go reproduce this in somebody else. But see, in this teaching, there is no room or maybe very little room for grace in the best cases. He says right here, in the Lord Jesus, and this is an appeal to the rightly ordered life under the person and work of Jesus, the work being the gospel, the good news of Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, 
And so we've said it over and over again. You hear it hopefully some uh, package, some way every week. You cannot obey God enough to please him and be saved. Simple as that. You need the grace of the Lord Jesus, the grace that abounds, the grace that produces all these things that we want to see in the Christian life, including holiness. God gives grace for this. So Paul, in preaching the gospel, when he first went to Thessalonica, he laid that foundation for the gospel, and it is really grace-based discipleship. It is the foundation for the Christian life. The whole of the New Testament gives us the complete picture of life in Christ, and that foundation is grace. This is what Paul taught. It's a gospel urging, okay? We urged you in the Lord Jesus. But then secondly, he says, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please and to please God. And he also says there, for you know the instructions we gave you in the Lord Jesus. Again, drawing upon the authority of Jesus, the gospel brings about Christ-like living or walking, as he uses those words. The Christian walk. Visible, observable transformation, month over month, year over year. Christians, our lives ought to reflect God's intentions for us. And those things, that life that's devoted, consecrated to him, it becomes that sweet aroma to God. That pleasing aroma to God. And Paul, on this foundation... He was not afraid to teach the commands of Scripture. The word here, as he just said, uh, for you know the instructions. That word instructions carries the idea of being in the military with high expectations of follow through. So, so Paul taught them faithfully. There was a gospel urging. There was faithful teaching. And then thirdly, we see right here, there's consistent practicing. Consistent practicing, he tells them, just as you are doing. Paul acknowledged their growth, that they've taken big strides in the faith and in holy living, and as Martin says, so much so that it's already become a way of life for them. You're doing this, I want you to do it more and more. I want you to grow and abound in this consistently practicing the holiness that I am calling you to. He calls them to more and more. He calls them to greater holiness. And so I would ask you, as we wrap up this brief first point, can we both celebrate progress and at the same time acknowledge that there is work to be done? It's a dangerous place for a church to get to where, hey, we're, we're happy with what's going on. Let's just kind of keep it there. I've had that thought recently. I felt real good about the life of the church, and I'm encouraged, and so many things are going well. And I'm like, God, can we just stay right here, please? Please, can we stay right here? But I know the test is coming. There's something around the corner that we're awaiting. It is coming. I know that there is work to be done. We can turn our attention to all the things that we're lacking in, those things that need to be, be developed, just as he said about their faith. He said to, to, 
to complete what is lacking, to, to build up what is lacking in your faith. There are a lot of areas where we need to progress, church, and it's not always going to be pleasant. We are called, just like they were, to more and more. So we can celebrate progress, but at the same time, acknowledge that there's a lot of work to be done, and we're, we're coming back to that tension of the Christian life. The already, the not yet. So we begin, just as he does in this text, hear the exhortations to greater holiness. Secondly, heed the emphasis on applied holiness. This is where I'm going to spend the majority of my time. Heed the emphasis on on applied holiness. He says in verse 3, the first part of verse 3, which really deserves a sermon all by itself, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. I know that just this week, just this week, and many, many, many weeks and maybe even years beforehand, you have spent so much time and energy, Christian, into trying to figure out what the will of God is. Who do I marry? Where do I go to school? Do I get married? What kind of job should I take? Should I take that job? Do I take that job? Do I buy this car? Do I spend this money? Do I invest in this? God help me. All these things I need to know, God. Right? You want to know what God's will for your life is? I can tell you right here. It's your sanctification. You spend your time working on discovering the hidden will of God, and, and so often we ignore the revealed will of God. You know what he wants you to do? Be sanctified, to look like Jesus, to grow in faith, to abound in love. That's what he wants. You think he cares that much about that car or that car, this house or that house? Friends, that is a distant matter in the Christian life. By all means, pray about it, but don't neglect your sanctification. He calls us to be sanctified. He wants us to be set apart for him, holy unto the Lord, consecrated, dedicated to him. The Bible says you are not your own Christian. You're not your own. You were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6. And so it makes sense that the call to holiness reaches into the very parts, as we see in this text, of your physical body. God cares about what you do with the members of your physical body. So Paul says on that, also 1 Corinthians 6, so glorify God in your body. The primary expectation is unpacked right there. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So lest we stop there and just say, okay, he wants me to be holy. I'm going to pray for this. He keeps going and he says, hey, I'm going to put my finger right on something that you need to pay attention to. That you abstain from sexual immorality. 
That's where we get the title for the message today, Holiness Homed In. And you're like, oh no, I don't like this homing in stuff. I don't like this holiness when it impacts my sexuality and all those things that I like to do or the things that I like to cultivate or dabble in in my Christian life. The things I don't want the preacher to touch or when the word of God touches it, I'm uncomfortable. You know that time when you get pain in your body and it's not just like a general pain, but it's a specific pain that you can be like, hey doc, I can put my finger right on that pain. Those of you who have had an appendectomy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When I went in, I'm like, it ain't right here. It ain't right here. It's right here. Right on the pain. Well, you know what Paul says right here? Hey, we're not, we're not getting specific enough in holiness. I'm not addressing those things that you need to hear. So Paul begins to home in. He says sexual immorality even. It might not even get specific enough. Let's make it a bit more uncomfortable. And forgive me if you got young ones that you're going to have to have some conversations later because of things I say. I, I, can't, uh, I can't promise anything right now. It will produce good conversation. I know that. I recall a sermon I preached from 1 Corinthians that was very, very uncomfortable but produced wonderful conversations. So I'm hoping and praying for that very thing today. So Paul is saying, I'm not going to let this thing fall under the generalities category, general sanctification, general holiness. No, I'm going to be precise. This is precisely, he says, what I'm talking about. And even within the precision, Talking about sexual immorality, it manifests in a number of different ways. Adultery, fornication, pornography, incest, homosexuality, and really the list goes on and on. You've got to remember that the context here of Thessalonica is a pagan society. It's largely made up of Gentiles who do not operate according to a biblical sexual ethic. Remember also that these believers were brand new in the faith, most of them probably just months believing. So it makes sense that the first area of their life would be touched, that is, the area of their sexuality. I guess we could say beyond persecution. That first area, because they're living in a society where where sex is esteemed to the place of God. We know a little bit about that, don't we? So this is the first place where they are being sanctified. You know, it was common in this society for husbands to have mistresses. It was common for their mixture of, of worship to be pagan and then also include prostitution. Many other perversions that came through this as normal in this society. And we can look around and see the revival of such practices everywhere we turn. So these instructions ought to translate to plenty of application for us believers today. Here's what he says. That first command, the overarching, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then he Continues that each one of you know how to control his own body 
in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So here's, a, here's a, the first encouragement here under heeding the emphasis on applied holiness. First off, control the members of your body. Believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, control the members of your body. He says, holiness, not passion. So he compares the holiness that God calls us to with the passion of the Gentiles. That holiness, again, it's set apart. Believer, when you were redeemed by the blood of Christ, each and every one of your body parts was redeemed as well. Somebody has never had that thought before that just had that thought. This is the foundation for Paul's exhortations in Romans 6, verses 12 and 13. Really, the whole of Romans 6. But here's what he says. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So contrary to what the world would have you believe, availing yourself to the pleasures of the flesh does not bring freedom. It brings bondage. I think it's really interesting that if you look in the world, You see people who indulge the passions of the flesh. And then it becomes not enough to get this or that. And when they set their sexuality on the level of God, they even go into things, and I'll say this word, okay? Sadomasochism. Isn't it interesting that people who want their pleasure spiked with pain? Y'all know that song, some of you. They want their pleasure spiked with pain because they can't get enough and they end up doing things that are actually really in real life enslaving. Isn't it ironic that by seeking freedom, they go down all the way to the point where they are physically enslaved to their desires? I hope that is very clear to you. And I hope it's very clear that if you begin to indulge those things in your life, you will end up in chains. But it is in the carefully disciplined life of holiness. Set apart for God's purposes. That there is true freedom. You know from experience where you end up if you follow the passions of the flesh. And so it's holiness, not passion. But then he gives us another comparison. He says it's honor, not ignorance. If you know God today, if you know God through his son Jesus Christ then you not only have the ability to control the members of your body, 
but you also have the greatest motivation known to mankind to exercise that self-control. You have the gospel of grace as your motivation. You have the indwelling spirit as your faithful guide. You have the Lord Jesus as your present model. And you have the freedom in him to reign in all these desires that he has given you and channel those to the glory of God. I think sometimes Christians, we get a bad rap and preachers do a bad job of of painting all these things that relate to sexuality as bad and wrong. But it is a wonderful gift from God. But it is a gift to be stewarded for God's glory. You, believer, you are not ignorant of the aim of your life. Maybe today you're hearing this for the first time. The aim of your life is the glory of God and the honor of God. It is not the pursuit of pleasure And so if you're willing to cast off the word of God in order to have pleasure, you will end up in that terrible situation that we just described. You'll be like the nations, as he mentions here, who conform their practices to cultural norms, who follow the impulses of godlessness, the impulses toward the flesh, those condemnable outcomes of broken human nature, They simply do not know. They don't know. They do what their flesh tells them to do. You, however, believer, you know. You know you ought to honor God in your body. You know you ought to be physically every member sanctified, set apart unto him. You know. And so honor God. In that way. Unbeliever today maybe is the day that you discover those things. And you begin to for the first time understand sexuality in a biblical light. So he says control the members of your body. Secondly. And undoubtedly this is going to again make folks uncomfortable. Consider the members of Christ's body. He says right there in this list of uh, subsequent commands, well, they function as commands. He says, first off, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Then, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And then he says, Excuse me, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. But then he says, verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Interesting, right? Okay, he's dealing with, with sexual immorality. And then he says that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. And so I'm telling you, Based on what I believe the scripture tells us today, you ought to consider those around you if you're a member of the body of Christ. You say, what does my my sexual activity have to do with my brother or sister in Christ? I think he tells us. Right here, he uses these two words, transgress, that is to cross a boundary of what is acceptable. And then the next word is wrong. 
and that is to defraud or to cheat. Now, not all commentators agree here, but this matter, that's what he says right here, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Y'all follow me here, okay? This matter clearly ties Paul's exhortations about sexual offense to your relationship with fellow saints in your church. Now, if you've got the King James Bible, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that they insert a word here. It says that no one transgress or wrong your brother in any matter. That's not what it says. I guess they weren't weren't sure what to do with that translation there. It is the matter. It's a definite article. This matter right here. And this would obviously include sexual sins against one another, that is, sins that physically involve your brother or sister in Christ. You know what I'm talking about. And many of you have probably been there. Welcomed or unwelcomed. These sins, according to Paul here, are serious matters in the eyes of God. And he's about to say... God will avenge. He'll bring justice for anyone who has been taken advantage of. That's that's hard news. That's for the believer. Yet, sexual sins of any kind are always a problem, not just for individuals, but for the community of saints. Hebert says it well. He says, any illegitimate sexual relationship has in it the potential for social complications that cannot be calculated. So I want to help you build just a bit of a little uh, theology of sexual immorality, okay? 1 Corinthians 6. 13b through 18 says the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? It brings it into a different light, doesn't it? When you think defiling your own body by participating in sexual immorality, no, 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 that doesn't affect my brother or sister in Christ. It just affects me. Paul says, no, you're attached to the body just like somebody else is attached to the body. And you know what happens when the body starts to function improperly? The whole body hurts. So he says, he says, 1 Corinthians 6, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? You understand what's happening here? Oh, well, my sin doesn't affect them. Shall I take these members and make them members of a prostitute? He says, never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Stop devaluing sexuality, Christian. It is far worse than you think. 
he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her and the next one and the next one and the next one and the next sight or the next screen or the next emotional attachment the next lust which Jesus equates to adultery oh my goodness He says, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so his conclusion, flee from sexual immorality. Another passage just prior to this, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7, in the context of unrepentant sexual immorality, you've heard me reference this a number of times in the past, a church member in Corinth is having relations with his stepmother. And so you easily see the problem here. And so in that context, Paul warns them, the church, he warns the church. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And so he's calling not only this this person who has shown that he's not a believer, at least so far as his actions, repent. And he he tells the church, repent because you're not handling this. You ought to handle this. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You know, the the heading in my Bible as I open this, the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 5, you know what the heading? It says, sexual immorality defiles the church. So appropriate. Here's the point, Christian. Those private sins that you thought were only your business, only in you, and are no one else's problem, God says it's doing far more damage around you than you think. Sexual sin not only diminishes who you are as you give yourself away piece by piece, but it rewires your brain much like a drug. It causes you to separate from people who love you, to isolate from healthy relationships, to view your spouse or your future spouse, your neighbor, your coworker, the person that is passing you on the street through the perverted lens of pleasure. Sexual sin shuns accountability and carries you quickly away from God and away from his people. And now understand, I want to I want to bring it down a notch. I understand that we are dealing with heavy matters. The worldly schemes lead many to find their identity in their sexuality. You watch a commercial and it is telling you, you are your chosen gender. You are this. Don't hide it. Let it 
Run your life. Let it rule you. I said I was going to calm down. Those schemes lead many into the lie that your identity is directly connected to your sexuality. The world schemes esteem sexual desires and pleasures, as we said to that godlike status. You know what it does? It causes us to belittle sexual sin and its impact on our lives and the lives around us. It promises freedom, but only oppresses us under our so-called animal instincts. So I want to offer this to you today. If you are struggling today with some besetting sexual sin, or if you're struggling in some way with understanding your sexuality, know today that you are not alone. You are not alone. There is abounding grace for you in Christ. God created you and your sexuality to be a beacon of his goodness. You, like the rest of us, have been deeply affected by the fall by the presence and, and dominion of sin, but God's work in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that he intends to restore your life, to rebuild your understanding of sexuality so that you may bring glory to him. Your desires do not have to control you. And so I plead with you to come under the perfect reign of Christ through repentance and faith. Trust God with your identity. Trust God with your desires, your future, your uniqueness. I think it's, it's amazing to me that the world's message of uniqueness, which is not uniqueness at all, it flattens everything that's unique about us. Hey, you'll be unique if you just embrace this. And then you find out, oh, I'm just like the rest of everybody else who has embraced this. God has written your uniqueness, and he's the only one who can restore it. Only he will bring the true liberty that the world continuously only pretends to offer. Now, I said that you are not alone, and I hope that's comfort to you. We have all sinned sexually many, many, many times. There are, there are some among us who live in victory. They fight, but they live in victory over things like pornography. There are some among us who have discovered victory over the passions of their flesh. And they live in that victory. You're not alone. You are not alone. And so today's message is not a message of sinless perfection. 
No, it's a message of honest repentance. We don't gather here to show the world how good we are. I'm not standing before you as somebody who has figured this all out. My repentance usually just takes place before the sermon. We gather here to show the world. We gather here to show one another how good God is. We boast in our weaknesses to show his power. We boast in our failure to show Christ's success. And then we surrender to him in repentance so that more and more, more and more, he may shape us according to his character. Heed the emphasis on applied holiness. And I hope right now you're like, I'm struck again by what holiness means in my life. Thirdly, finally, yikes. Hold in mind the effects of disregarding holiness. Briefly, wrap up here, verses 6 through 8. He tells us, disregarding holiness deserves God's vengeance. So here's the warning. There are real consequences to those inside the church who would disregard God's command, who would reject holiness, who would abuse grace and walk in immorality without repentance. God will bring justice in very practical ways. And those consequences ought to frighten you to the one who would belittle sexual sin or write it off as natural. These words ought to be hard hitting in terms of warning you that you may be lost. To the one who refuses to repent, you ought to be trembling over the condition of your soul right now. So have you rejected the call to holiness? Have you embraced impurity? What would your life say? He says right here, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And Martin writes here, a positive response to God's calling requires a commitment to live in a manner consistent with the character of God. The reality of such a commitment is seen in a sanctified life, a life obedient to God and empowered by the spirit of God. If you've been transformed by the gospel, then let's see that sanctifying fruit. It deserves God's vengeance, but also disregarding holiness dismisses God's provision. We're we're coming to a conclusion here. The temptation is to excuse yourself from responsibility to God right now. To sidestep the authority of God's word. Ah, he's just a prude. Another preacher who's hung up on outdated practices. Ah, preacher, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know me. These are are just normal human desires. It's not that bad. 
Pastor, you don't know my situation. God made me this way. Pastor, you don't understand. You don't understand, Pastor, I can't quit. I'm stuck. I've tried to control my desires before, and I just don't have victory. And in all of these ways and many, many more, Paul says, your problem is not with the preacher, but with God. If you're a believer and you've got an excuse today, then you are definitely not listening to the Holy Spirit, whom God has provided. Is the provision to help you in this very moment. The provision of the Spirit makes repentance possible today. God has provided what you need. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God right here today to see the victory, a reality in your life. So as we conclude, if your response as excuses, then you will have left here today disregarding God himself, having grieved the Holy Spirit of God. If your response today is repentance, then you have the opportunity to leave here today refreshed and renewed by the grace of God, that, that riches of his lavish grace found in Christ. And so, I'll just ask you, do you need counsel? Do you need accountability? Do you need discipleship regarding your fight against these sins? Come confess that today. Maybe, maybe you need to, as James says, confess your sins one to another, that we may pray for one another and be healed. The healing comes from Christ. He shed his blood. He died. He rose again to heal you, to give you victory in the face of all of these besetting sins. May the Holy Spirit help us as we respond to God's word now. Pray with me. Father, Father, we do not want to disregard you. We don't want to disregard your word. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, or in the worst case, blaspheme the Spirit of God because of a rejection of what you've called us to. For those unbelievers, Father, I pray that they would find the the sweetness of the gospel satisfying to the very depths of who they are, that they would cast off every notion to build their identity on something else, that today it will be found in Jesus. Father, help them. For those believers that would continue to harbor that bit of leaven, those believers that would continue to cater to the fleshly desires Father, I pray that they would see that this damage is far-reaching, that they would repent today and be fully restored. Father, help us as we go forward as a church 
in this fight together, fighting these passions of the flesh according to the power of the Spirit, seeking to be conformed to your Son who is perfect in every way. God, do these sanctifying works in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.